From the American College of Gastroenterology, this is Evidence-Based GI, and I'm Jacqueline Gallen, founder of GastroGirl, a patient-centric company focused on improving digestive health. Today, we'll be discussing colorectal cancer screening guidelines with Philip Schoenfeld, editor-in-chief, about his summary in the September 2023 issue of EBGI. His summary, entitled Pitfalls of Second-Guessing Guidelines, reviews the recent and controversial guidance statement from the American College of Physicians on screening for colorectal cancer in asymptomatic average risk adults from the August 2023 issue of the ACP's flagship journal, The Annals of Internal Medicine. So why is this an important topic for our listeners, Dr. Schoenfeld? Well, Jackie, family practice physicians and general internists and other primary care providers frequently are the crucial and first step in educating patients about colorectal cancer screening and ensuring that average risk adults get screened for colorectal cancer. And these providers need to be able to discuss several different options with the patients, including doing a fecal immunochemical test, or stool DNA test or a colonoscopy and discuss with the patients the benefits and risks of each option and do shared decision-making with the patient. And that's been shown to improve adherence to colorectal cancer screening. If a general internist just reflexively orders a screening colonoscopy when a patient is unwilling or uncertain about going through the bowel prep or taking a day off work or getting sedated, and the patient doesn't follow through on the procedure, well, that's not really helpful for anybody. So we need to have a consistent voice educating patients about what the options are and what the benefits and risks of those options are. From a patient perspective, this is pretty confusing, you know, especially given all of the, especially recent in the last several years, all of the publicity and all of the awareness about young onset colorectal cancer, which is showing what, a two to four increase per year since the 1990s in the incidence of colorectal cancer in people that are under 50 years old. So this boggles my mind as from a patient. Now we have a very serious issue of a conflicting guideline that could potentially be very harmful to patients ultimately. Some patients, they want a colonoscopy. They're aware of their, of their risk factors. They want to adhere to the guidelines from the American College of Gastroenterology. They really want to do this. And this really completes their CRC screening for up to 10 years. And it's a preventative tool that can identify and remove polyps. And also under the ACG guidelines, patients may want to follow more less invasive type of tests, such as the fecal immunochemical test, although according to those guidelines, this should be done annually and is essentially a tool to make an early diagnosis of stage one or two colorectal cancer, which can be treatable. It is treatable. Correct. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, which is an independent agency that is supported by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, that's a governmental agency. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force is an independent agency that makes an annual report to Congress. And most importantly, the recommendations for screening from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force are then followed by CMS, meaning Medicare and Medicaid. So if the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force 
recommends or suggests that patients get a certain type of screening, then under the Affordable Care Act, those tests have to be covered by insurance without any cost sharing by the patient. So what that essentially means is if you're 45 to 49 years old and you're on Medicaid, you have to be offered colorectal cancer screening. If you're over the age of 75 and you're on Medicare, then you have to be offered colorectal cancer screening. And we want to make sure there's a unified voice that is giving consistent recommendations to patients. Unfortunately, this new guidance statement from the American College of Physicians provides a lot of contradictory statements that may ultimately be very confusing for our colleagues, general internists who are members of the American College of Physicians. Completely confusing. And I mean, based on your summary in this new issue of Evidence-Based GI, it sounds like the American College of Physicians has published a guidance statement about CRC screening that is at odds with the standard U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, as well as guidelines from the American Cancer Society and the American College of Gastroenterology. So my next question is, could you please discuss how the authors developed this new American College of Physicians guidance statement on CRC screening and help us by discussing the study findings. Specifically, this new American College of Physicians guidance statement varies from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommendations, the American Cancer Society guidelines on colorectal cancer screening, as well as the American College of Gastroenterology colorectal cancer screening guideline by specifically saying that physicians should suggest against colorectal cancer screening in 45 to 49-year-olds should automatically stop colorectal cancer screening in individuals over the age of 75 and should not use stool DNA tests. And if other stool tests like a fecal immunochemical test or a GWIAF-based fecal occult blood test are used, that it should only be done every two years instead of every year. So those are multiple recommendations that are in conflict with all the other guidelines, which now say we should start colorectal cancer screening at age 45, that state that when a patient is over the age of 75, you should have an individualized discussion with the patient about colorectal cancer screening. Because we have many patients that are over 75 that are otherwise very healthy, no heart disease, no diabetes, that would be appropriate for screening and do have a life expectancy of 10 years or more, as well as routinely recommending fecal immunochemical tests every year. I mean, I have to admit also, in the U.S., we don't use GWIAC-based fecal occult blood tests essentially at all anymore since you have to do three samples and you have to modify your diet and your medication intake for things like aspirin when you're collecting the samples. Those are the key points about how these guidelines or the guidance statement from the ACP differs. Now, I should note, the ACP didn't actually do a guideline. They did a new process, which they call a guidance state, which means 
they reviewed other societies' guidelines and then made an assessment of whether it was a good guideline or not and whether or not they agreed with the guidelines reasoning. So they're not actually doing the actual research themselves to produce a guideline. They're just critiquing guidelines from other groups. And to do that, they use something called the Agree to instrument, which is the appraisal of guidelines for research and evaluation. And this is intended to be an evidence-based medicine tool to assess the quality of guidelines. Generally speaking, I think that's a good thing. However, I think it creates a facade of legitimacy that can be confusing and actually lead you down the wrong pathway. So for example, among the five guidelines that they critique, actually the authors who primarily are health policy, well, the first two authors are health policy analysts employed by the American College of Physicians. The next two authors, one is a general internist who focuses on menopause and osteoporosis. <laughs> and then the final one is a general internist in the Minneapolis VA. But essentially, they looked at the American Cancer Society, the U.S. Multi-Society Task Force, the ECG guidelines, and essentially stated that based on this Agree to instrument, they should not be recommended for use, primarily because of a lack of editorial independence, meaning if GI docs write the guidelines, they're not truly editorially independent because they have a financial stake in recommending people get colonoscopy, and a lack of stakeholder involvement, which to some extent means are patients involved, but also means are governmental agencies that may fund healthcare involved. And essentially, all of the other guidelines, except for the American Cancer Society and the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, got very low scores on stakeholder involvement and editorial independence. Again, I, I think that there's a certain artificiality here that can be troubling if there's this consensus among the authors of the ACP guidance statement that all these other guidelines that they are critiquing are not adequate, and that even the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force guidelines, which they said, yes, it's an adequate guideline to recommend, but only after modifications, I guess I would suggest what the ACP should do is actually conduct a full guideline writing process that they can truly own, as opposed to just critiquing what they like and dislike from other academic organizations. What's also alarming about this from a patient perspective is when you're talking about the backgrounds of the authors and the real world experience in the clinic with patients and screening and understanding of the stages of colorectal cancer and truly the effectiveness of what colonoscopy, for instance, can really accomplish. And again, there is a problem. There is a, a problem with this young onset colorectal cancer that it's scary, period, end of story. And, the, you know, I'm skimming through their guideline statement and I'm like, where's the real hard data? And it's, it doesn't really make any sense. It would be a gastroenterologist doing a review of some plastic surgery guidelines 
that, well, you know, you know, this should only be done this way. This technique is not effective in this type of patient when you have, you've never done that technique, right, on that patient and you're, you're, you're weighing in on some guidelines for how to do a certain procedure. That's how, in my opinion, as a patient, how ludicrous this seems. Well, I, I, to use that analogy, <laughs> an astroneurologist, even if I, and, and to some extent I do, consider myself an evidence-based medicine expert who understands the basics of evidence-based guidelines, I'm not sure as a gastroenterologist, even with that background in epidemiology, that I'd be the best person to critique the American Cancer Society guidelines on mammogram for breast cancer. Perfect analogy. Perfect analogy. And, and that's what's so alarming about this. I mean, can I ask a dumb question? You know, is there, when you're a general physician, primary care provider, and you're seeing your patient and you're not recommending them for a procedure, does that save money in some way along the chain? And is that something that's going to look good in your care according to whatever policies and healthcare standards are out there. You know what I'm trying to say? Yep. And and if you're in something called an accountable care organization, it might, but in the U.S. that is. Now, if you take a European perspective, then it becomes a much different equation because that's totally government-funded national healthcare systems. And by the way, this really does have a perspective that is more appropriate to a European national healthcare system perspective. Um, but otherwise, no. It, in the U.S. system, where the Affordable Care Act says that a U.S. Preventive Services Task Force screening recommendation with a grade A or grade B score should be covered by Medicare and Medicaid, and ultimately then by virtually every other insurance company without require any cost sharing from the patient, it's not impact it's not being helpful to that physician's bottom line by recommending against the screening. No, well that's good because I mean that's a good positive thing because I was trying to look at what was their intent. What were they trying to do here? Well, they will say that their point is that they're really relying on randomized controlled trials to support recommendations. And that much of the data to recommend doing colorectal cancer screening in the 45 to 49 year old age group is based on modeling studies that estimate how much colorectal cancer incidence will be reduced if screening is started at age 45, but that has not been demonstrated in a randomized controlled trial, which take many years to design and complete. But the bottom line is, as you said, from the 1990s to 2016 on, we've seen a 50% increase in colon cancer incidence rates in the 45 to 49-year-old age group. Specifically, it's gone from about 23 cases per 100,000 persons to 34 per 100,000 persons. And essentially, in their guidance statement, the ACP says, well, it's not a randomized controlled trial. It's based on a modeling study. We realize there's a big increase in colon cancer incidence in the 45 to 49-year-old age group, but we don't think this is sufficient for the cost of screening in that 45 to 49-year-old age group. That's a value statement based on different stakeholders involved in critiquing the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. Well, I, li I, like what, I like what you said earlier when we were kind of chit-chatting about this, about 
well, if you're a certain age and you're 48 and you were diagnosed with colorectal cancer at a later stage and it was too late, if you got screened at 45, according to ACG and the U.S. Preventative Task Force guidelines, it could have been maybe prevented, right? Earlier, earlier detection. So if you're that age group and you're reading this or listening to this or a patient listening to this, it doesn't make you feel too good. <laughs> I, I would agree with that. I think the big issue here is how we apply these new ACP guidance statement in our practices, recognizing that for our general internal medicine colleagues, they may be thinking, gosh, once a patient is 76, there should be no more colon cancer screening based on the ACP guidance, whereas the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force says it should be an individualized decision because if I'm 76, but I don't have any heart disease and I don't have diabetes, I very possibly have a 10-year life expectancy. And colon cancer screening could be very appropriate at 76, 77, 78 based on the individual. And I think that I personally am going to need to work on educating my colleagues in primary care more about the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force guidelines, why they are appropriate, and why the emphasis from the ACP guidance statement on randomized controlled trials in the setting of screening may be counterproductive. And again, it, it just creates a lot of confusion among physicians and patients about what's the appropriate thing to do, at least in the United States. Perhaps these guidelines will be helpful for European general internists since their healthcare system is different, but I think it's going to lead to a lot of confusion when they contradict the gold standard in the U.S., which is the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force guideline. Agreed. And I just want to offer some final thoughts about why it's so important for primary care physicians and gastroenterologists to provide consistent recommendations about colorectal screening so that patients can adhere to them and not miss out on getting uh, screened at an appropriate time and an appropriate uh, cadence according to the recommendations so that those cancers can be detected early. And, you know, for those who are patients listening, please understand that there are conflicting guidance. But like Dr. Schoenfeld said, it's important to adhere and understand the U.S. Preventative Task Force guidance on this and to speak with your physician about screening and make sure that you have a collaborative decision making based on what your risk factors are and what you feel is good for your individual health situation. Any final thoughts, Dr. Schoenfeld? I think the key point for our listeners is that regardless of the ACP guidance statements, I would keep recommending colon cancer screening starting at age 45, consistent with the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force guidelines, that in individuals over the age of 75, that if they have a life expectancy of at least 10 years, and that usually means no heart disease and no diabetes, then you need to do individualized decision-making with the patient about whether or not to continue colon cancer screening. And if you're going to do fecal immunochemical tests, do it annually and colonoscopy every 10 years or sooner if colon polyps have been found. Well, this has been a great enlightening discussion. I know we are out of time for today, but thank you again for joining me today. And for our listeners, Please remember to subscribe to Evidence-Based GI on your favorite podcast platform 
follow us on Twitter at ACG underscore EBGI, where we host tutorials every Wednesday. And look for our blast email from the ACG on September 13th with our new issue. Thank you. Thank you.